Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. Now, we're in this series that's called The Way of Jesus. And throughout this series, what we've been doing is we've been looking at what it looks like not just to follow Jesus in thought or in intention, but what we're doing is we're looking at how we follow Jesus as a lifestyle, to model our lifestyle after the way of Jesus. And uh, Mark Scandrett, who is this author and just this really practical kind of guide for people in following the way of Jesus, relates that following Jesus is a lot more like a karate dojo than a, a lecture hall. Because typically when you think about church and you think about following Jesus, you think about this kind of gathering where you're sitting and you're listening. But what he actually says is that it's a lot more like a dojo where you are getting your body involved. It's like, this is, this is the picture that I have in my head, right? Of a Jesus dojo where Mr. Miyagi is your teacher and you are Daniel-san learning the wax on and the wax off of the way of Jesus. It's your body involved, not just in your head, but it's also in your practice. Now, and that's kind of where I want to land today. That's kind of the idea that I want to focus on is the idea that it's more than just in our head, but it's also within our actions and our practice. Now, this last week, uh, I watched this, this short film that Apple put out. It was really, what it really was, it was a commercial to kind of showcase their products and to show all the different things that their products could do with, within like a business format. These four friends start their own business and they're using all these Apple products and how they work together. And I was kind of, I was just blown away at all the different ways that they could use it. It was just really cool things I didn't know that they could do. But really what happened when I watched it is it took me back in time uh, to remember the very first iPod Nano. So as I was remembering this, yeah, this is, this is what it looked like. This was the Nano. And um, I remember when this came out because I, I wanted it so bad. And uh, at the time, the only way that I could take mu- to listen to music was with my dad's portable CD player. And the only CDs that he would let me take would, would be either Carmen or Michael W. Smith. So those are the only music that I was allowed to listen to. And so I wanted this so that I could listen to my own music. And so I started to look for it. Now, when I was looking, I, I couldn't really buy, the, buy it outright. I couldn't buy it for its full price, but I found out that I could, you know, I could get it cheaper on eBay. So I began to start looking on eBay, looking at auctions, and I would just casually follow and place bids on auctions until they get too high. And eventually I, I finally won one. I remember staying up late, winning this auction for an iPod Nano, and I was so excited. I got it for like half off. Um, and I remember when it got there, it got in the mail and I opened up the box and I looked at it and it was just a little bit different than what an iPod Nano looked like. And I don't know if I got conned or, or if I just couldn't tell the difference between a, a knockoff and the authentic thing. But I ended up with this very off-brand fake iPod Nano that now I was trying to make the most out of. And I remember plugging it in uh, to the computer and iTunes wouldn't even recognize it. I couldn't upload music onto it. And I was just like so defeated. And it wasn't until a friend of mine showed me this kind of workaround uh, with this site uh, that was called LimeWire. 
Uh, I don't know if any of you remember LimeWire, but LimeWire was just this, this super cool peer-to-peer sharing site where you could, where you could download millions of songs for free and, uh, and I could upload them to this MP3 player that was a knockoff iPod. And it was so, so cool because what happened is, is they had all these songs at your disposal that you could download all these different things. And even there was times where it wasn't even the original song. It was like somebody else's cover of that song that was on there. Or other times it was like somebody was recording the song in, in a car, like they were listening to it on the radio and they recorded it and uploaded it. But either way, it kind of made it like a game where you had to go and find the right version. And, but, I, but I did it and I built this playlist, all these playlists that I wanted on my brand new iPad or iPod. Uh, now, some of you just by listening to this understand what's going on. Uh, I did not know it at the time, uh, but what I was doing was committing a crime, a crime known as piracy which by definition is the unauthorized use or reproduction of another's work. And honestly, the thing is, is I should have known. I should have known. I, this is ingrained in my head from every DVD that we owned, that it was, said, it was this commercial that said, you know, you wouldn't steal a car or a handbag, but downloading pirated films is illegal. Stealing is against the law. Piracy, it's a crime. And I should have known, but I just maybe lived in this delusion of that it was all okay. And honestly, it wasn't until LimeWire was shut down due to being illegal and all that I even realized what I was doing was wrong. And the thing is, is even when I did know that it was wrong, most of my friends didn't seem to have too much of a problem with it, that they seemed to think that it was fine. Because honestly, what kid had the money to spend $1 per song when you had to buy the music? And so I was now in this moral dilemma where if a friend said, hey, I just got these new songs, do you want me to put them on your iPod? I I wasn't going to say to them, oh no, don't give me your free music because you're a lawbreaker. Because let's say I do that, then all of a sudden I'm ostracized because I'm the one who's who's judging everyone else for doing it. And so it's this catch-22 where I can't do what's wrong because it's wrong. And I I can't do what's right because it's socially wrong. And what was happening in this moment was something that I didn't really understand at the time, but it was having a profound impact on myself, but also culture at large. This is what was happening. The understanding of what was right and what was wrong was being redefined and the moral line was moving. Where at one point we would have seen Uh, the moral standard as here and stealing as here, this was kind of deemed as a gray area where the moral line was being brought down or the standard was brought down and our behavior was being made more and more acceptable. It was more and more okay. And that was made done by by popular opinion. It was made done by our desires because when LimeWire was shut down in 2010, it had 50 million monthly users. And that's just LimeWire. There were other sites like Napster that were doing the same thing. And that didn't happen overnight night. That happened over years. It happened one person at a time, one day at a time, one share at a time until society had changed the standard to better fit our desires than our convictions. Now, typically when something like this happens, a a, a standard is moving. uh, The first people who begin to notice that and see that that's happening is the generation before. If you're in it, you don't usually notice it as often as somebody else who may be a parent or a grandparent or somebody who's going to see these things. It's kind of like the story that you hear of the young fish that was swimming along in the ocean and the older fish swims up to them and says, hey, how's the water today? And the younger fish says, what's water? 
It's, this is all I've ever known. This is what's normal. I mean, just take for example, how a kid can oftentimes love a song and then you hear the song and you're just like appalled at what they're listening to. But they love the song. They know every word of the song, even though they don't even understand what it means or even they don't understand what the messaging is. When you hear the song, it's like, it's foreign to you. It's, it's even wrong to you. But the thing is, is that for them, it's just common, average, and even normal to their ears. Now we've all seen and felt this shift in our lives. And there's been tons of examples where we've seen that what's normal in our, what, what, what is now normal wasn't normal before. That we've seen society accept things because to become more and more comfortable with ideas that were once seen as wrong. We've, seen, we've even seen it in ourselves. We see ourselves slowly let our guard down and accept certain ways of living that are now just normal to us. But what I want to kind of land with right now is this idea that just because something is normal doesn't mean that it's good for us. Just because everybody is doing it, just because everyone is, is following that way doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. Just because it's normal to spend hours a day on our phone or watching Netflix doesn't mean that that's good for us. Just because making money is the number one priority for, in our culture doesn't mean that that's what's most important in life. Just because working 60-hour work weeks is normal in your company doesn't mean that's good for you. Just because divorce is normal doesn't mean that you should give up on your marriage. Certain things have been seen as normal, but that doesn't mean that they're good for us. And in Matthew chapter five through seven, we see the words of Jesus that speak exactly to this cultural moment. That as Jesus redefines what's normal, and his version of normal is basically backwards and it's upside down to, to his culture, to our culture, and basically every culture in between. I mean, let's just look at how he starts it. And at the very beginning, he starts his sermon by redefining happiness. The, the Greek word at the beginning of each of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 is makarios, which translates to happy or fortunate or how most of our Bibles would translate it as blessed. So he redefines happiness as happy are those who are poor. Uh, fortunate are those who mourn. Happy are those who are humble. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And I don't know about you, but I don't know the last time that I associated happiness with being short on money. I don't know that the last time that I, I saw uh, dealing with difficult people as being a time to be happy, as when I'm in this, a time of loss or losing something that I love, that I'm all of a sudden thinking of happiness. And to be honest, people that are listening to this sermon, listening to this, op this opening line are, are honestly probably confused. And to, to be completely honest, as a pastor who's spent some time learning what it means to write sermons, this is like bad sermon writing 101, right? Like you don't start with something confusing that's like, doesn't make any sense. You want to start with something that's relatable. You want to start with something that makes sense. But Jesus decides right from the get-go to start with something, this is reestablishing normal. And then Jesus begins to challenge our view of what's right and what's wrong. And he does this by using comparison, but not comparison in the way that we do, where we would compare ourselves to somebody who's worse than us to make ourselves feel closer to what's right and what's wrong. But he does so by, by comparing the norm of his day, the standard of his day to himself, and which raises the standard, which makes it more than just goodness, but it's something above and beyond that. He says things like this. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. He's quoting the Old Testament that you shall not murder. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you that if you have hate in your heart, that you are guilty. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say that if you look at someone with lust, that you're guilty. 
You've heard it said an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but I say, if you're hit, turn the other cheek. It's radical teaching. He takes things and, and he just raises the bar so high that everybody is listening to it is, is just like, that is so far and so beyond. He continues with things like, if somebody asks you for something, just give it to them generously. Forgive those who've hurt you. Love and pray for your enemies. Not just the people that you love, pray for those that are your enemies. And then at the end, it cuts somewhere towards the end, he has the audacity to say, don't worry. Which we're all like, okay, well, you know, there's certain things in there I felt good about, but then you just lost me right there. Nobody gets out of the Sermon on the Mount alive. And the people who are listening are feeling kind of uncomfortable with this tension, feeling uncomfortable with this standard because it's going against the grain. And a lot of them are probably wondering, where's the nice guy who did all the miracles? Like, bring that guy back. That's the guy that we, we wanted to listen to. And then Jesus concludes his teaching. He concludes these three chapters with this story in Matthew chapter 7. And uh, he begins to tell the story that, that is familiar to most of us. And it goes like this. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came and the streams rose. The winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus tells this story that's the conclusion to his sermon. He relates the decisions that we make in our life, the decisions he's been talking about in these last three chapters, to that of building a house. And he's not focusing on what the house looks like, but he's focusing on more where is that house built? Is it built on a strong foundation or is it built on shifting ground? Because here's the thing, you could build a really beautiful home. You could build a house that has the best floor plan. It has the best cabinets and the best appliances in your kitchen. It can, you can choose the right paint color and the house could be perfect. But if it wasn't built on a foundation, it's just a matter of time before none of that stuff even matters. And that's kind of the idea that he's getting at, that the question that we have to ask is that, are the things that I'm building on a solid foundation? Because we can make some really great decisions in our life. We can make great decisions financially, in our career, with the friends we make, our fitness and our diet. All those things can be really good, but if they're not built on a foundation that's, that's strong, then, they're, then it's just a matter of time. Now, the thing about this is that when we listen to this, nobody intentionally chooses to build their house on something that's not firm. You, no, you'd have to be delusional to choose something, choose to build your life on something that you know is eventually going to crumble or that's going to fail. Uh, and I don't think that the issue is that we ignore the foundation. I just think that what society has deemed as a normal foundation isn't as firm as we think it is that there's so many things that we have accepted that that's normal, but they, they're not as strong as we think. And we, and, and we don't need anyone to tell us that life is complex. Storms come in this life and are the, is the foundation we're standing on firm. And this kind of goes back to when you look at the very beginning of the Bible, you look in Genesis chapter three, you see 
that Adam and Eve, the original sin was them deciding for themselves that they knew what was right, that they knew what better than God. And so they decided to choose for themselves. And I think that what I see, that when, especially when I read throughout the Bible, is that's the common thread throughout humanity, that we all have to fight this desire to choose that we know best for ourselves, that God may have his way, but I, I have certain things that are more priority to me. And those are the things that are most important. And it kind of can put us in this, in this idea that we know best. And I believe that's why Jesus came. Jesus came as a rescue mission to save us from this perpetual cycle of building on foundations that aren't as firm as they look. So Jesus offers us an alternative, a different way of, his, of life, his way that's built on a firm foundation. So let's go back to the, to the beginning of this story and kind of see how he begins to lay this out. He says in Matthew 7, verse 24, he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. That's the idea that he's getting at. And essentially, I think what, what he says when he, when he first says that, he's talking about the idea of, will you hear these words of mine? What he's asking is, who are you comparing yourself to? Are you comparing yourself to others around you? Or are you comparing yourself to this idea, my teachings? Because we have to open up our ears to hear what he says, to pay attention to his standard and to begin to go on this inward journey of asking ourselves, am I comparing myself to Jesus or am I comparing myself to the world? We have to ask, is Jesus's teaching challenging my view of normal? Is Jesus's teaching, do my standards line up with his teaching? Uh, and I think that this is something that we're all kind of trying to wrestle through and figure out. But I think that, like I said, we tend to look at what's normal and what's defining normal a lot of times is not, is not Jesus's teachings. There was a study done uh, two years ago that was kind of polling millennial Christians' media consumption. And in this study, uh, their findings found that, that the ratio of, of media that, that was being consumed was around... 20 to one of secular to Christian ideas. That for every one Christian idea, there were 20 that, that, that weren't. And not that all of those 20 ideas that, that, that we're looking at is wrong or it's bad, but we wonder what's going on in our brain. We wonder why our thoughts are moving a certain direction when the ratio is moving that way. That just by ratio alone, when you look at what defines normal for most of us, it's other things. It's the things that, 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 we're, that we're seeing, that we're bombarded with day after day. And Jesus' invitation is to come and to begin to retrain our brain based on his teachings. Begin to retrain our brain on what's normal. It's kind of why the, the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 says this idea. He says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So we're retraining our brains to redefine that transformation happens as we begin to think differently. And so the, how do the, one of the ways I think we do this is to retrain our brain is by reading the Bible. That as we open up the Bible and we look at the scriptures, we look at the story of Jesus, that it begins to reform us and retrain us. I love how the Bible Project talks about this. They say that, that the Bible is this collection of, of, of stories, this library of, of different writings that are all pointing to Jesus to give us a clear picture of him and to understand his view and his vision for our life. And it was this kind of idea of that the way that we begin to train, change and transform is by our thinking, by changing the way that we think that led the Bible, uh, the Center for Bible Engagement to do this study where they were just kind of trying to gauge where, um, where our engagement with scripture is at kind of as, as a culture. And what they found in this, in this survey was 
really incredible. They, this kind of wasn't the point of the survey, but it's what was the, kind of the main finding of it. That they, they found that people who engaged with the Bible uh, one time a week had a minimal uh, effect in their change of behavior. That there was a, just a, like, maybe that was your Sunday morning that you come to church and you hear it once a week, that it was, there was a minimal effect in, in change and in, in, in behavior. They, they found that whenever people were reading the Bible two times a week, that they, it had the same thing, a minimal effect and change. And then at three times a week, there was just this, this small increase, this, just, this little blip on the map of like, there was a little bit of change. But then this is what, what's really extraordinary is that when people were engaging with, with the Bible four times a week, they saw unbelievable statistics. That things just began to explode. For instance, check this out. That when people were reading scripture four times a week, that feeling lonely drops 30%. That anger issues drop 32%. That bitterness in relationships, whether that's in your home or whether that's your, your coworkers, drops, 30, or drops 40%. That alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling stagnant in your, in, in your, in your relationship with Jesus, feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61% when you're in, in the scriptures four times a week. And then on the flip side of this, you have that you see things increasing like crazy. That when people are reading scripture four times a week, that they're sharing their faith jumps 200%. That discipling other people around them jumps 230%. That as we begin to get into the scripture, that something happens whenever we come at it with this kind of regularity, when we come at it with this kind of thinking, that if we want to rewire our, our brains to have the mind of Jesus, if we want to experience change, then we have to start increasing that ratio. We have to start increasing the frequency and allow that to literally transform us into a new person by changing the way that we think. And then Jesus continues from there. So first of all, the first thing he says is that we have to, anybody who hears these words of mine, retrain our brain, rethink about how we view what's normal. And then he goes on to say that whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And I think that one of the myths that we believe in the church is that if we just know the Bible in our head, that it will change us. And I mean, like we just looked at it, it's so important to know the Bible, but just to know it in your head is not enough. Jesus says that we have to put that into practice. His charge is to take those words and to do what they say and to begin to practice them. And I think that the best way to probably communicate this idea and this shift of not just like hearing it, but doing it uh, is this idea that John Ortberg talks about in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. And he explains in this, in this chapter that there's a huge difference between training to do something and trying to do something. I mean, just take for example, um, you could try really hard to do a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to do it until you start training, a good example of this would be that uh, our oldest Judah is about to turn five and he's going to start learning uh, piano. He's already interested in it and we've kind of been looking at how we're going to go about teaching him that. Uh, and it's just, it's kind of fun and exciting for him to kind of learn this. He knows where middle C is and he's very proud of that right now. And, uh, but the thing is, is if I sat Judah down at the piano and I, and I said, hey son, I know that you love the piano um, and I know that you love Star Wars. So I want you to play the Star Wars main theme. Just start to play it. Uh, he would say, dad, I don't know how. And then I'd say, well, just give it, a, give it a try, buddy. And he'd just bang on the piano, right? And, you know, chances are he may get a couple notes that, were act, that are actually in the song, but that it, what he's playing is, does not sound like it. And he's like, and he may even think he's doing great, actually. He's five years old, right? So it's like, he's, he's probably gonna be like, I'm doing it. But 
that's not the song. That's not how the song sounds. And so I'm like, well, just keep trying, buddy. Just keep, keep, keep on trying, keep, keep on playing. And it doesn't matter how hard he tries, he's not going to be able to do it because he has not started learning that. And so, but if, when he starts taking lessons and he starts learning at his level how to play with his fingers on the piano, when he begins to learn what those notes are called, then he be, can begin to read music and he begin, can become someone who can learn how to play the Star Wars theme. Because it's right now, it's beyond him. And I think that a lot of times what we think about whenever we think about following Jesus is we think about trying really hard. That you come to church and you hear a message and you're like, man, I just, I have got to do better. I have got to be more patient. I have got to forgive more people. I've got to do better. So we just try really hard. We go and read things like the Sermon on the Mount and we're like, okay, I just have to try to forgive, try to, for, to pray for my enemies. I've got to give gener generously and I've got to be persistent in my prayers and I'm not going to give up again this week. And what happens when we try really hard is that we kind of get in this cycle where we wake up and we try really hard, but after a while we begin to grow very tired and we burn out and we give up and then we just feel guilty. And I think that we have to begin to reframe our thinking on this from just trying to training. Because the way that training works is that you wake up tomorrow and you start where you're at. That's why, the, that's why there are couch to 5Ks, right? Because you don't just wake up today and just go run a 5K. You start where you're at and you start with, with how, where the program starts you. You start by learning a few keys on the piano before you start learning the whole thing. And so we've got to shift the paradigm from just trying really hard to do what Jesus taught us and to begin training in the way of Jesus. Um, so for me, this is kind of where this has kind of all come to the place for me. And uh, I was in this place last August where I essentially decided to do an experiment um, in kind of how I was following Jesus. Um, I decided to, to delete social media from my phones uh, for the weekend. And so I decided that on Friday night, I would delete the apps from my phone. And then I, you know, would just not, not be on them at all. And then Sunday night, I would re-download them. And uh, it, what was... What happened in that time, I mean, honestly, this is, this is why I was doing it. I was just kind of feeling a little bit overwhelmed, generally speaking, but I kind of went through and, you know, thanks to the ultimate journey, I've kind of got these like, you know, a feeling chart to kind of go through and name feelings and, and understand. This is kind of, I just kind of writing, started writing down the feelings that I was feeling in that time. I felt exhausted. I felt uncertain, anxious, distracted, stuck, insecure, and inadequate. And... The thing is, is that these all come in waves, but I think that, that there's a lot of times that we, we can relate to those feelings, that we feel those things. And so kind of what I began to feel like was a, a simple step was to maybe just clear out some noise in my head. So that's when I decided that I'm going to delete these apps from my phone for the weekend. And what I found over the next four weeks of doing this was, pr was pretty significant. I found that I was more present with my family. I found that I was less distracted. I was less stressed those days. I was less worried about things. I was coming into Sunday mornings. I didn't feel as overwhelmed or stressed with all these ideas. And I found myself comparing myself to other people a ton less. And so uh, at the end of those four weeks, I just never re-downloaded them. <laughs> I just decided I, I, I didn't need it. And so I went from that and I just, and I went, you know, months before I, I even and I've, have re-downloaded them and used them for different things. But now I'm at the place where I don't use them on my phone most of the time because it provided so much freedom for me. And 
I don't say that to you as this prescription of what it looks like to do this. I, the reason I share that with you is because, and, and I don't, I don't wanna, want you to hear this as, oh, then that's what you need to do is to get rid of social media apps because those are the worst. Because I think that whenever we tend to take, take a journey that we're on and we begin to say, hey, I, this worked for me. Everybody else needs to do this. That's kind of where legalism begins to creep in. And we say, hey, you need to do what I'm doing. But this was, this was a, a next step for me. This was a chance for me to follow Jesus in a different way, to clear out some noise in my head. And his words began to jump off the page a lot more. His words began to become more and more clear to me. And it, and it began to just set me on this journey of treating my following of Jesus a lot of times like these experiments of trying something and asking what areas uh, in my life is the way of Jesus challenging what's normal to me? What, way, what areas of my life do, do I feel like that it's challenging my view of what's normal, the, the normal that I live into every single day? And is, is that the way of Jesus? And so I just begin to start training. And so what I would say today is start practicing. That's the idea, practice, start training, be, be spe specific, start small and let the way of Jesus begin to transform and change you as you walk in that. Um, so I want to close with, with just this, this, um, this picture that I want to show you in just a second. Um, there is, there is this storm that came through, uh, Florida in 2018. It was a category four hurricane that came through Mexico beach. And, uh, this, it just did massive damage to, to all, all of the houses on this coastline. Uh, but there was this one house that, in the records that looked utterly untouched. And this is, here's the picture of it. That all these other houses were just demolished and you've got this house that basically looks untouched. And um, there was in, this, this house was built by a man named LeBron Lackey and he built the house. And, and I, I want you to catch what he said about his, the building process with this. He said, at every point from pilings to the roof and everything in between, when it came to make a decision about what level of material, uh, about what level of material or what to use, we didn't pay attention to code. We went above and beyond code. And we asked the question, what would survive the big one? We consistently tried to build for that. As they built this house, they, they began to, to take things to another level. The home was built to withstand winds of up to 250 miles per hour. That uh, it has 40 foot pilings buried into the ground. That it, it had created extra elevation to allow for storm surge. And it also had added one foot thick concrete walls and steel cables to keep the roof attached. And this idea that he presents in this picture is, is I think what, what is the call that when some of us look at this picture, what happens is, is, that, is that this honestly can, can begin to make us feel things if, if we begin to process this in the idea and, and the language of building our life on something that's a firm foundation. And he says here, he says that we didn't, when we were building, we didn't look at code. We went, we went above and beyond code. We asked the question, what would survive the big one? And as you look at this picture, I think that there's a lot of us that as we see this, that 
This can make us feel different things. And this is, I think, a, a lot of times how, how when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, when we talk about this close of this, of this message, this is kind of what, what this does for us, is that for some of you, when you see this picture and you see this house standing, what it does is, is it provides a comfort for you. That, that what you have built your life on, that the things that you have bought into, the teachings of Jesus that have redefined normal for you, that this provides comfort for you. That when the big one comes, that if storms may come in your life, that you'll stand firm in those things. For others of you, when you see this picture, it, it almost stands as a warning that you see the other houses that don't make it in this and you begin to reevaluate are the things that I'm buying into, the stories that I'm believing, the habits that I'm living in, are those things forming me into the image of Jesus or are these built on something that's not firm? And are they not going to be able to, to withstand the storm? And there's others of you that as you see this, that this might just be an explanation for you. That it explains like, man, there's things that have crumbled in my life because they weren't built on a firm foundation. And I just want to essentially close today by extending an invitation to you. That I think that it's in these moments that we begin to ask the question, is there a better way? Is there a better way? And I would just simply advocate that I, I believe that it's the way of Jesus and he extends an invitation to each of us to come and to follow him, to come and follow his way of life. Because listen to me, he is for you. He has your best interest at, at heart. He wants good things for you. He wants wholeness for you. He wants freedom for you. He has a purpose for your life. And what he's calling you to come and do is to come and follow him, not just at a thought level, not just by the definition of saying, hey, I, I am a Christian, but to say, I am following the way of Jesus, not just in thought, but in my actions and in my practice. That today he invites you on a journey and a journey that you don't have to step in and just be perfect all of a sudden, but you begin to walk this out as you walk and follow the way of Jesus. That's why in Matthew chapter 11, the, the message paraphrase says, come and, and, and follow me. Come to me and I will give you rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how, I'll, watch how I do it. And that's the invitation that he's offering to you today, to come and to follow him and build your life on something that's firm, that's strong, and it's going oftentimes a very different way than what culture has defined as normal. So today what I, want, what I want to do is just give you a chance to respond to that. So all across this room, if you would just stand, uh, I want to give just a minute to, to respond and our worship team is going to come and they're just going to, going to lead us uh, in just a few minutes. And um, I just want to close this time together by just praying for you and praying that as we follow Jesus, as we look to follow the way of Jesus, that he would just begin to change us on a heart level, change us on a soul level to lead us to a place where we are looking more like Jesus, where the, the actions of Jesus, the mind of Jesus become more and more of a natural response. As we begin to redefine normal, as we begin to put those things into practice by not just trying really hard, but by training, that we're gonna see change happen as we look at his word and let it reform us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much um, for your word. I thank you so much that, that the invitation that you give us is, is one to come and to, to experience life. And so Lord, right now, I just pray that, that as we're face to face with, with your teachings and as we're face to face with this idea of redefining what's normal, Lord, I pray that you would just begin to invite us on a journey that doesn't just feel like we have to do more, but that feels like unforced, 
that it feels like we're just, we're finally walking in the way that we were designed to, walking in the way that we were destined to. Lord, I pray that as we walk this out, that you would be with each of us, that you would build us up, that you would give us people to surround us that, that are going to encourage us to continue to walk in the way of Jesus and help us to build on a firm foundation that's never gonna fail us. And in Jesus' name, we pray, amen.